Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zoe, welcome for being on the show. Like I said, uh, it is, it's an honor to have you on. I've been a fan of a lot of what you've been doing. A lot of people have been really impressed by some of the stuff you're saying. There's a lot of people that have not been impressed, as you see this little statin thing behind, and, and you know, you're being one of the UK's leading no- notorious statin critics, along with Malcolm Kendrick and Asim Malhotra, who I'll be, I think I'll be talking to Asim next month at Low Carb Seattle. We'll be podcasting with him, I think. But it's a pleasure having you on. And what I had talked about, and, and we're being mindful of your time, uh, you know, what, what I had talked about is, is seeing you uh, present in Zurich, Switzerland, talking about uh, the, the knowledge we have based on nutrition science and being somewhat critical of some of the uh, conclusions that are being drawn based on really, uh, you know, nutritional epidemiology, which I don't think we can draw very many conclusions on. But you did point out the fact that the things that you find compelling or at least something we should consider as possibly compelling are lack of associations being more helpful than than seeing positive correlations particularly when we see these sort of weak relative risk numbers can you can you elaborate a little bit on this lack of association and the meaning uh, uh, of it yeah absolutely and i do think it's a, a very important aspect of epidemiology but not one that tends to get reported so when i did my phd which was looking at the dietary fat guidelines total fat restriction of 30% and saturated fat restriction of 10%. And I was looking at the randomized control trial and epidemiological evidence for those two dietary guidelines. When I went in the final chapter to not just look at what I had found, but it's very important to put your own research in context. And I looked at other teams. So for example, Ski F and Miller 2009, Siri Torino, which is the very well-known paper from 2010, half a dozen other teams that had looked at numerous combinations of either fat reduction, fat replacement, swapping out saturated fat, putting in polyunsaturated fat, and then looking at particular findings. And I was particularly interested in mortality, so it might be all-cause mortality, might be coronary heart disease mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality. So there were 40 different findings across those teams of researchers, and only three actually came up with a finding. So for me, the headline from the entire dietary fat evidence world is that 37 out of 40 findings across seven different teams of researchers found absolutely nothing whatsoever. And yet nobody knows that. What we do here is the three findings out of the 40 that actually found something. And those papers, I think one I completely agree with, the Chowdhury paper 2014, found against trans fats, you'll get no argument from most people on that one, certainly not from me. And then you had the Hooper paper in 2011, and then that was just reiterated in 2015. That's the one paper that they hang on to. And they say that an association was found 
with taking out saturated fat, increasing polyunsaturated fat and cardiovascular disease events. Nothing against total fat whatsoever. That should never have been demonized and should not be demonized today. Nothing for all mortality, CVD mortality, coronary heart disease mortality, myocardial infarctions, non-fatal myocardial infarctions, strokes, or coronary heart disease events. And yet they don't shout that from the rooftops. And even the one finding for CVD events actually doesn't withstand scrutiny when you subject it to the sensitivity test that's actually done in the paper. That's not me doing a sensitivity test. Dr. Trudy Deakins spotted this one. There's a sensitivity test in the paper where they look at the studies that actually swapped out saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat, not just the ones that planned to do that, but the ones that actually managed to achieve it. And then the significance fell away. So we actually then have one out of 40 findings against trans fat, no argument from me, let's move on and stop attacking total fat and saturated fat. So the non-findings for me are so important that they just don't get mentioned. Yeah, we actually talked about that with uh, Bart K yesterday and his, his kind of message was that it seems like when we did a lot of these, these, these research studies that you know, the files that had the evidence towards what was trying to be proven found its way onto the desktop in the spotlight and then all the evidence that was to the contrary that would disprove kind of shuttled away into an office drawer never to see the light of day again. And he's like, we need to take out all that stuff that was in the drawer never to see the light of day again and put a spotlight on that and kind of see what the, the whole amount of information actually is. Well, that's interesting because for my PhD, I was absolutely insistent that there was going to be no cherry picking. You can't go into a PhD and be taken seriously if you're going to cherry pick. So I wanted to look at the totality of the evidence and I wanted to look at the studies that included mortality because as Dr. Malcolm Kendrick says, you can guarantee that people won't die from heart disease by pushing them off a cliff, but you haven't exactly done a good study. So you've got to look at the studies that include all cause mortality as well as cardiovascular disease mortality or more typically in the studies of the time that I was looking at, which was back in the 1960s and 70s, they more typically looked at coronary heart disease mortality. So we're just looking at heart disease and not including the stroke element. So I'm confident that all the RCTs and all the epidemiological studies that were available to the dietary fact committees at the time they introduced the dietary fact guidelines, which was 1977 in the US, 1983 in the UK, I'm confident that I've seen all of the studies that include uh, mortality, and that's six randomized control trials and six epidemiological studies. But what I found interesting, and, and where I would agree with your um, recent guest, is that none of those studies were actually calling for change. So when you go back, I pulled them in meta-analysis, which was the uh, unique, I guess, aspect of, of, of my PhD, to go back at the time the guidelines were set, but then to use the modern technique of systematic review and meta-analysis to see what that technique would have told the researchers at the time if they were open-minded to actually looking at the evidence. I think they had a game plan before going into setting those dietary guidelines, but that's uh, Senator George McGovern had just been on a Pritikin low-fat boot camp, so I think he thought that low-fat was the way to go. Uh, so had they had the opportunity to look at all the, the studies pulled together, they would definitely have seen that there was no evidence. But even looking individually at the studies that they were perfectly able to do, no study was crying out for dietary guidelines to be introduced. 
And there were some really interesting conclusions, particularly in the randomized control trials. So the research committee, 1965, low-fat diet examination, for example, the final sentence in that paper is that a low-fat diet has no place in the treatment of myocardial infarction, heart attack. You've got the Woodhill Sydney paper, 1978, saying we're concerned about the potential toxicity of the polyunsaturated fat intervention. And of course, the Rose corn oil trial also rose expressed concern saying this does not appear to be beneficial and may indeed be harmful. So no studies were crying out for change. And yet change was what we introduced back in 1983 in the UK, 77 in the US. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Look, look at the history beyond that. But now you'll have people like, I, I, you know, we talk to people that uh, certainly think that a low fat diet is a way to go. In fact, there are a lot of the folks that are advocates of a, of a vegetarian or vegan diet that will claim that uh, Dr. Dean Ornish's study, which was a low fat study, uh, although not vegan, because he included animal, animal products in that diet, but low fat study, nonetheless, showed the reversal of heart disease. Uh, granted, there was a number of lifestyle modifications that occurred, lack of smoking, you know, drinking exercise, you know, all, all the typical things you do for lifestyle. Do you have any, do you have anything to say regarding that particular intervention trial that, that Dean Ornish was part of? I didn't even look at that, to be honest, because I was only interested in studies that included mortality. There really is no point in improving one thing if you cause people to die more of something else. So you've got to look at overall mortality. Uh, if I looked at that study, the first thing I would look at would be to see if it actually measured outcomes. The important one obviously being mortality or was it trying to measure indicators? Because a number of the studies that I've seen that come out of the vegan uh, high priests, shall we call them, uh, they're measuring surrogate endpoints, they're measuring indicators. And I don't much care what happens to someone's cholesterol, I care what happens to someone's life expectancy or their death rate or what is likely to be on their death certificate. Um, so I, I will go away and have a look at that study if you think it's of any great interest, and I should. But I must admit, the vegan studies that I've looked at, I've been rolling my eyes within about five minutes of reading the paper. So I've not found them to be robust evidence that I should be spending much time looking at. Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Brett Shear on the other day, cardiologist, and he was, he was pretty critical of that study, claiming that uh, you know the, the, the marker, the, the endpoints that they used were... Uh, uh, angiography we're looking at the vessels in the heart and showing uh, some what, what appeared to be some evidence of improvement although the, the sensitivity of those studies were, were, were highly questionable as to whether they could actually show what they what they did and, and, it, and it was never really been reproduced but um, the one thing that uh, you know I find uh, kind of interesting uh, you know about this whole thing is that you know we, we just ignore these negative findings um, you know, the, the, the point you brought up, you know, if I die of cancer at 60, it sure as hell going to protect me from heart disease at 80, right? So, I mean, I can, yeah. you know, if I want to avoid, you know, and that's the thing, I think it's so important that we discuss this all-cause mortality because, uh, you know, we've, we've got this belief that, you know, the only way to escape death is, is to not have a heart attack. And, and that's clearly not the case. Uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing, you know, as heart disease is kind of stabilized, we see an incredible rise in these other uh, diseases of chronic lifestyle, you know, Western disease. We're not seeing the, the deaths from infectious diseases like we saw, you know, a hundred years ago, but we're certainly seeing cancer deaths and neurodegenerative deaths and, uh, you know, things like that rising, you know, significantly. 
And I think that's, uh, that's an important point. Let me talk to you about, um, let's talk about red meat because you've been, you, you've, you've seen that red meat has been demonized. It has been linked to heart disease, has been linked to diabetes or, or, or tried to be linked to diabetes. It's been linked to uh, obesity. It's been linked to uh, colorectal cancer, most famously. And you've been talking about the, the actual data that's out there. Can you, can you talk a little bit about red meat a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I was a vegetarian for 20 years, so I should probably declare that as an interest. When I started researching nutrition, and I mean researching nutrition, not being taught nutrition, because those are very, very different uh, things. Uh, so my confirmation bias would have been to find against animal foods and to find in favour of plant foods. And I could not carry on researching with that belief, in all honesty, because that is just not what the evidence shows in nutrition. So I've done a couple of things. I've got a couple of great uh, blog posts on my site. Um, one of them was uh, looking at the totality for red meat evidence. And I did that last year, and I think it's simply called Red Meat, the Evidence. And essentially, I went to the Nutrition Evidence Library for the US, which is the one that was used by the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee for the most recent Dietary Guidelines revision, which of course was 2015. They've now just appointed the committee for the 2020 guidelines. And very interestingly, in the Nutrition Evidence Library, you don't have a section for red meat. So straight off, red meat is not a subject to focus. What they do have is a section that examines intake of animal protein products. So animal protein is the category. And then they examine that against seven particular conditions, cardiovascular disease, blood pressure, type two diabetes, body weight, colorectal cancer, bowel cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer. And I started off by going to the evidence that was presented and essentially taking the approach, I would list all the evidence claimed against each condition. And then if there were evidence claimed against red meat, I would go back to the studies that were referenced to see what the definition of red meat was, to see if it really was red meat or if it was processed meat. Um, so I started going through them and I won't bore you with the detail. It's all laid out very, very methodically on this fairly short uh, blog, blog post. We would just take cardiovascular disease, for example. There were only seven studies that looked at animal protein. Four of those only looked at eggs. One looked at low-carb diet, so it wasn't particularly looking at red meat. So the conclusion from that one was that not one evaluated red meat, let alone found against it. So then you move to the next one which happened to be blood pressure. No study found any association between red meat, any other kind of meat or, um, or even animal protein, just no association whatsoever. And that then ended up being the pattern. There was either no red meat studied or nothing found against red meat. There was just no association. And you can't then start looking at the Bradford Hill criteria and causation when you haven't even established association. So the other thing that then came up again last year and I got invited to a couple of farmers conferences in the UK on the back of this. I don't earn from these, by the way. I go and give my time and my money for free if I go along to farmers conferences. So there's, there's no conflict of interest there. So the other one that I looked at in uh, 2018, I looked at it in uh, early April 2018, was the International Association for Research into Cancer, the IARC, they called it a monograph. I think they should have called it War and Peace. It was 511 pages long, which was looking at red and processed meat. And there are two claims. Basically, 
were that red meat was probably carcinogenic and processed meat was carcinogenic largely in respect of bowel cancer. Uh, I do think it's pretty um, irresponsible of an organisation to start banding around things like red meat is probably carcinogenic. You've either got evidence for something or you haven't. So what I did with this paper, as I say, it was 500 pages, 511 pages long. What I'm doing now with all of these studies is actually not challenging them to start with, which I tend to with other studies we'll come on to, um, but just go in and look at the data that they're claiming supports their argument. So I went into the paper on page 107. It basically said there are 14 cohort studies that are being relied upon for the association being claimed between red meat and colorectal cancer. So I just went through the summary in the paper, in the IARC paper, for those 14 studies. And again, I won't bore you with these, but they, they read something like this. So study number one, colorectal cancer risk was not significantly associated. Number two, was not associated. Number three, was not associated. Number four, was not associated, was unrelated, was not statistically significant. So you go through the 14 and you think, hang on a sec, you've just told me that this is your evidence for those two claims. And it turns out that there was one of those 14 studies that claimed an association between meat and colon cancer, which is just one part of colorectal cancer. That was a Seventh-day Adventist study of non-smoking, non-drinking, should-be vegetarians, which found an association between any meat and fish, interestingly, and this colon cancer. So, of course, the IARC, which is probably quite supportive of white meat and fish, albeit in small quantities, even they cautioned against this one study and said it's probably not robust because it's Loma Lindu and Seventh-day Adventists and religious and da 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 So we end up with none of the 14 studies actually saying what the headlines claim. And every Monday, I've been doing this now for nearly 10 years, I take the news story from the previous week. It might be the latest Lancet paper, Diet and Deaths, or another Lancet paper early on this year, Fibre is Fabulous. I take last week's big news story and have a look at it. And I have never yet not been able to find something wrong with one of these major papers. So the headlines will be screaming, red meat is going to kill you, or stronger statins are going to save your life. And within a day or so, I found out what they've done in the paper that basically negates the headline. But by that point, the headline is already digested by people. It's gone around families. They start worrying about red meat. They start thinking that they should be on medications. The things that we're trying to impart to them as knowledge then get put to the back of their mind because they're getting this constant barrage of the conventional wisdom in inverted commas being rammed down their throats again it, it is is definitely up to the ante over the last few months we've obviously had an impact because the pace at which the anti-meat anti-fat pro-drug publications are coming out i have never seen the the speed with which this has happened yeah, Zoe, in fact, I think yesterday there was a study came out of, I think it was out of Oxford, you know, and they, they claiming that eating a, you know, a slice of bacon or what you guys like to call a rasher of bacon will increase your risk of cancer, you know, something like 20%. Again, another study lead author, interestingly, a member of the Vegan Society. I'm sure there's no conflict there, but again, another <clears throat> low risk epidemiologic study with, you know, with abysmally low uh, relative risk numbers, you know, something in this 15 to 20%, you know, which you know is, is just basically meaningless, but that's being flashed across every major headline again. And I think we see this 
as we see the potential profitability of these alternate meat companies going up, you know, with, with estimates of 12 billion a year in sales this year and, and, and projected to be 25 billion year, a year in 2025, there is a huge push to, uh, to, to get these studies out there and, and to, to over, over-represent what they actually say. There is indeed. Um, that study, it took a couple of minutes. It didn't take a day. It wouldn't have to be a Monday note. It was so quick to have a look at. Luckily, the entire paper was available online. You just have to trace from any one of the news site headlines to find the original paper. I always go to the tables and the figures. I never read the words. It's the tables and the figures that will tell you what's going on. Sure enough, figure one, I don't have it up in front of me, but there was no statistical significance for red meat. There was no statistical significance for cheese. There was none for dairy. There was none for fish. There was none for poultry. There was the usual one that we tend to find for processed meat. And when they added red and processed meat together, of course, the processed meat then has the impact. So they tried to get the headline red and processed meat, but red meat on its own was not an issue. I have yet to see any study that shows that real red meat, let alone what you and I probably consider red meat, quality red meat, but any red meat, I have yet to see the study that condemns red meat. And to me, it would make no sense whatsoever that there ever would be a robust study that would do that because meat is the thing that we've been eating since time began. We haven't been eating these cereals and Twinkie bars and fake meats and any of these other products they want to put in front of us. This is what we've been eating. If we could catch an animal, any animal, if we could get some food from an animal, that was by far the greatest prize that we could get in our local environment throughout evolution. And the idea that this ancient food is now trying to kill us is absolutely insane. Yeah, I think, I, I don't remember the fellow's name, you probably will, that he was, I think he was like the, the, the equivalent of the Surgeon General in, in the UK talking, was it Cleve or something like that? I can't yeah. remember the fellow's name saying something. It was absurd to think that an ancient food could be responsible for modern diseases, which I forget, I forget who to attribute that to, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, Peter Thomas. I think he had two first names, Peter Thomas Cleve, Surgeon Captain General, and you quoted it pretty perfectly there. Modern disease, ancient food, they just aren't caused by each other. Yeah, exactly. Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's transition over to a different topic because I saw you, you were critical about the recommendation of, you know, we've been told to eat our, you know, five fruits and fed, fr- five fruits and veg a day. And then some people say, no, it needs to be 10 because the five fruits and veg a day just wasn't enough. And you've been critical about that recommendation as well. Can you discuss why you feel that that may not be appropriate? Okay, so I want to look at evidence for nutrition. And for something to be evidence-based, the evidence has to come first. And that seems to be a fundamental point that not many people who work in the field of nutrition and evidence seem to have grasped. So the fact that my PhD looked at the dietary fat guidelines and found that there was no evidence at the time means that they were not evidence-based and they can never be evidence-based because the evidence wasn't there at the time. So the five-a-day message came in in 1991. There are various anecdotes or theories or hypotheses as to how it might have came about, but any evidence for five-a-day would therefore need to precede 1991 and there isn't any. My view on where five a day came from, I heard somebody say that it was put together in the back of a taxi by a couple of people who were working in Brussels on nutrition and healthy eating, and one had a good idea and said it to the other. I think, and I put this in my 2010 obesity book, that it started as the National Five a Day for Better Health Programme 
1991, which was a public-private partnership between the National Cancer Institute, which is incidentally the organisation that has trademarked the term five a day, and the Produce for Better Health Foundation. And the meeting was held in 1991 in California. And you can imagine the, I mean, the kind of companies that were there were logistics firms who were moving fruit and vegetables around the country, specialist producers, whether they were in mushrooms or blueberries or fresh vegetables, grapes, general produce firms, so you'd have sun-made raisins, General Mills, the Green Giant brand, and so on. There were companies that had an interest in people eating more fruit and veg. And you can almost imagine they get towards the end of the meeting and somebody says, this has been a great meeting, we need to have an output, our goal is to get people to eat more fruit and veg, what can we do? And some bright spark comes up with, why don't we try to get people to eat five portions a day? Why five? Well, it's a stretch target. It's better than three. It might seem more achievable than seven. It might be as simple as the fact that it's the number of digits on one hand, but it is no more scientific than that. Now, any attempts to come up with papers since to say fruit and veg is good for you can only ever be retrospective attempts to try to justify a health message that is not evidence-based. So that's my first issue with five a day that it's not evidence-based. When you then go into it in more detail, I get annoyed with it on a number of levels. And I guess the first one is because we've put so much effort into five a day. We even have five a day coordinators in different countries in the world. It's spanned across, I think, it's 20 to 30 different countries across at least three continents when it has no evidence base whatsoever. You know, first of all, my issue is that this has been at the expense of something that could have been a much better health message. So had we not gone out with five a day, but let's say had we gone out to say to people, eat real food. If it's in your natural environment, then you should eat it. And if it's not, you shouldn't. That would have been by far a much better health message. One of the second issues that I've got is that we didn't tell people to swap in any way. So th this happened with that diet and death study in The Lancet quite recently, where they were saying you need to eat more whole grains and more legumes and more fruit and more vegetables. Like, hang on a sec, 40% of Americans are obese and about 70% are obese or overweight combined. Is it really helpful to be telling them to eat more of anything, let alone more of absolutely every carbohydrate that you can possibly think of? So if you've got to go in with some non-evidence-based message of have five things a day, then can you at least say swap five a day? So swap five pieces of junk for five things that would be better. And then, okay, if that has to be fruit, but then it'd be much better to say, well, don't even eat fruit because fruit is just sugar with a few nutrients, but far fewer than you might think. Can you swap your junk, not for fruit, but can you swap it for meat, fish, eggs, and dairy and start moving people up the nutrition pyramid to something that would be generally helpful. And then you look around at people on social internet forums who are trying to get their five a day, and you'll see mums saying things like, oh, you can put sweet corn on your pizza. You can put raisins on your children's sugary cereal. It's like, geez, guys, what are you doing to our children? Uh, and of course, it's just not a helpful message for the people who are overweight or obese. I think Gary Tobes famously said, if you're overweight, fruit is not your friend. So I got a lot of issues with the five a day message. Um, and I just think we should stop lying to our citizens and making out that the messages that we're giving them are evidence-based or good for them. Yeah, Zoe, you, you kind of uh, preempted the question I was going to ask when you talked about the swapping in and out, because that was going to be my, my next thought was, 
it would have been one thing if the five a day message was to say, well, yeah, let's get rid of that, you know, that Twinkie or that candy bar and sub in, you know, this, this vegetable or something like that. And that's, that's probably a net win for a lot of people. But, um, that wasn't the message. And the first thing I thought of was, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the raisin brand cereal because they have the, the raisins in there and it's not just the raisins, it's the raisins that they're literally coated with a layer of sugar on the raisin as if they weren't sweet enough as is. And, you know, that's just like the perfect kind of micro example to me where it's like they want you to have the five a day, but then they also want you to use the fact that you ate that five a day to justify, you know, getting that granola bar or that, that candy bar and say, okay, I had my five vegetables a day. Now I can have something, something on top of that, which just happens to also be the high profit margin junk food. It's exactly what is going on. And we are just fooling our citizens and our citizens are fooling themselves. I remember doing an article for a national newspaper when it was looking at the sugar intake of a particular family. And this family were eating dates, which is not dissimilar to raisins, thinking that dried fruit was healthy. And I was able to show them that the dates that they were consuming actually had more sugar than toffee. And that is the case with, with a lot of the things that we're eating. And as you say, you then get this halo effect, particularly with mums. Oh, I put my five a day in my little Johnny's lunchbox and off he's gone with his raisins and his cherry tomatoes and banana and whatever else. And you've just sent your child away to school with sugar, 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 and more sugar. And this kind of leads into a, a broader issue that I've got, not just with fruit, but with this idea that at the same time, our government seemed to be trying to tell us to eat less sugar, but more carbohydrate. And when are they going to wake up and realize that carbohydrate is just sugar? All carbohydrate either is in its simplest form or breaks down into various different sugars. So how can we eat less sugar and more carbohydrate and meet the messages that you're giving us at the same time? Yeah, it's... It's all really interesting. And I think of like, I also think of like some of this stuff that's being advocated for on paper and then how that translates into the field. And I always go back to when I was a, when I was a teacher and I watched these kids and what they would eat. And uh, the funny, well, I don't know if I would call it funny, but the, the interesting thing I would notice is when they would really manipulate the lunch programs and put like fruits and vegetables in with that stuff, what ended, ultimately ended up happening is the kids would open up these like little boxes of of lunch products and they'd throw away everything they didn't want. And if there wasn't enough there at the end of the day, they'd walk over to the convenience store and buy soda and candy bars. So it's like, it's, it's not even really applicable. I think in, in context of modern society to really be trying to like push something onto, onto some of these, these people when they're just gonna, you know, it's not inconvenient, it's not inconvenient enough for them to go and just go do what they were going to do otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Hey Zoe, let's uh, let's transition over to uh, statins, uh, if you don't mind. Um, statins are widely seen as a a boon for presenting preventing uh, cardiovascular events, or at least that's what I was told in medical school. I remember when I was in medical school, hearing the the attendant physicians saying that we need to put a Lipitor in the water. Uh, it's something that you know so many people have high cholesterol that we have to get it down. 
Um, and there are a lot of people that have been critical about that, that mindset. Uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about the evidence for or against statins and why you feel, or if, or if you do feel that, that they may be unnecessarily prescribed in many cases? Interesting one. Um, I guess the first point I'd like to make, because a number of us were attacked quite recently and quite uh, horrifically, actually, in the UK national press, is that none of us are statin deniers. None of us would say that statins don't have an effect, not least because we would not, they would not have side effects if they didn't have effects. But what all three of us, Dr. Axim, Malhotra, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, and I believe is that it's far fairer to point out to patients that statins can benefit and statins can harm and to share with patients the absolute benefits and the absolute harms and the best way to do that is with the numbers needed to treat and there's a fabulous website the nnt.com and you can look at the nnt data for a number of different things and you can look at the nnt data for statins for people who already have existing heart disease and then for statins for those who don't have heart disease, which thankfully is still the majority. I don't have the exact number for benefit in front of me, but there's certainly no lives would be saved in any circumstance by people from primary prevention, those who don't have cardiovascular disease, taking a statin. An event might be avoided. I think uh, one of the event numbers is something like one in 150. But at the same time, when you look on the right-hand side and you look at the potential harm of statins, they now estimate that about one in 50 people will develop type 2 diabetes as a result of taking a statin. And if you Google statin diabetes lawsuit, that's been gathering momentum in the US for quite a few years now. So all three of us simply say you should present the facts to patients so that they can make an informed choice. And understandably, a lot of patients will say to that, their practitioners, what would you do, doc? Um, and that's entirely reasonable, but it's not reasonable, I don't believe, for the doctor to be putting their opinion onto the patient and particularly to be sharing things like relative risks rather than absolute risks. It's much fairer to present to the patient, you might have a one in 150 something of benefit, chance of benefit, you might have a one in 50 chance of developing type 2 diabetes, one of the other harms on the right hand side is for muscle damage or pain and I think that's about one in ten. Now presented with those kind of facts not many people would take statins, it doesn't matter what my opinion is, my opinion is irrelevant, it's the facts as to whether or not people would take statins if they knew that kind of absolute data. Yeah it seems like it's kind of uh, the same as what we were talking about in the beginning where you're presented with the potential benefits that you can get from it but you're not necessarily presented with the side effects all the time so people aren't armed with all the information when making a decision as to whether to go on it or not. It's not just that. So that they're not given the evidence of harm, but all too often any benefits are presented in the terms of relative risk. So you can explain relative risk and absolute risk uh, with a, an extreme example. Let's try and think of one now. Okay, so if I say that you guys have got a one in 10,000 chance of developing disease X, and then if I tell you you've got a 1.3 chance of developing in 10,000 of developing disease X, you're almost certainly going to say to me, well, I'm still not worried. 1.3 in 10,000, 1 in 10,000, I'm not worried. I've got more chance of being run over crossing the road. But I could present those two numbers as saying you've got a 30% greater chance of developing this condition in the 1.3 in 10,000 than you have in the 1 in 10,000 because the relative risk is looking at the 1.3 versus the 1. It's not looking at the 10,000. 
Now, every statin study that I've seen is presenting a relative risk. So there was one yesterday that came out of Nottingham University, and it was quite an interesting study because it looked at things in two parts. So first of all, it said, we looked back at a database in the UK of 165,000 people, and we looked at those who didn't have heart disease, but they started taking a statin for whatever reason in this particular period of time. So we looked where they had a pre-statin LDL cholesterol measure and then when they had a post-statin LDL cholesterol measure sometime over the next two years so that the statin had had chance to have an effect. And they described the people who had more than a 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol. I mean, what side effects these people were suffering, I have no idea. But they described those people as optimal responders. And they were about 49% of the 165,000. So they called the 51% suboptimal responders because they didn't have at least a 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol. So that was the first part of the study. The second part then said, if you were in the optimal group, so you had this massive reduction in LDLC, you were more likely to not have a cardiovascular event over the next, it was approximately six years. And they said the difference between the people whose cholesterol lowered the most and the people whose cholesterol didn't was a 17% difference. And when you get into the absolute numbers, you'd find in death rates, this was something like the difference between 1.5 versus 1.6 in a thousand. So it's actually not that difference to the example I've just given you of the one versus 1.3 in 10,000. But there was actually a much bigger issue. And I spotted the issue. I went into comms with the researchers overnight following the paper they got back to me really really quickly i've got a blog post up on it already when i looked at the characteristics table there is something that the, the reason obviously that the cholesterol doesn't drop dramatically is you're now looking at the group of people that don't do what they're told and they don't take their statins regularly some of them may have given up altogether some of them may have been experiencing side effects but those are naughty patients and sean you all know there are naughty patients in the world and they don't respect white coats and they're a little bit rebellious and they just generally have a bit of a disregard for health messages. Now, sure enough, when you looked at the limited alcohol and smoking information that was in this paper, the people who didn't have the lowest cholesterol by the end of the statin regime were 1.43 times more likely to be abusing alcohol and 1.25 times more likely to be smokers. And that was on limited information. If we'd have had the full information, the lifestyle of these people could have been even more differential. We don't know, did they not exercise? Most likely they were the least likely to exercise. We did know they had more likelihood of poor controlled diabetes. We knew quite a lot from that characteristics table. It didn't look like any of that had been adjusted for. So I contacted the researchers. They confirmed that none of that had been adjusted for. So I said, this shouldn't have been a statin headline of 17% difference with CVD events if you can get your cholesterol really low. This should have said that smokers and drinkers are more likely to have CVD events. And oh, by the way, they're probably less likely to follow health messages and to take their medications like good people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the so-called healthy user bias is rife. You know, we see it in, in all of these studies. Do you feel that, I mean, you know, there, there's people like John, and, I'm, and I always mess up his last name, John <laughs> Anitis or Nitis or however you say from Stanford. Um, you know, he's been wildly critical of nutritional epidemiology saying it's been just basically a waste of time and we spent billions of dollars and learned nothing from it. Do you find any value in doing, continuing to do these nutritional epidemiology studies? Do we need to get past that? How do we, how do we actually learn something useful 
uh, both in nutrition and, and even in some of these medical clinical trials? What would you say needs to be done? Oh, that's a great question. I, I would come back to where we opened, which is there is value in a non-finding, but the non-findings unfortunately don't get reported. I wish more researchers would go in and say, hey, do you know what? We didn't find anything between A and B because that would tell us something. That would start telling us things that we don't need to worry about. But I just, I'm with John. <laughs> I won't bother trying to pronounce his surname either. Um, I'm with John. Nutritional, and Gary Talbis is here as well, and Nina Teicholds. Nutritional epidemiology has gone past the point of any opportunity to be taken seriously. It is now so heavily agenda orientated that we know the people who are working in this field it's pretty much the we call it the harvard production line of epidemiological studies uh, they seem to have a never-ending group of people who will produce these studies on anything they're just examining the same databases whether it's the nurses health study looking at women or the health professionals follow-up study looking at men or more recently they keep looking at this ARIC study they just repeatedly interrogate these studies probably just using computers to say hey, go in and find any small pattern that you can find, whether it's between people cleaning their teeth on a Monday and then what happens on a Wednesday and try to ignore the lack of robustness in dietary questionnaires and all the rest of it. And it's just nonsense that's been churned out at the moment. And then they go to the relative risk rather than the absolute risk. And then you're in the situation that it's only ever association, it's not causation. These things get nowhere near the double relative risk that they would need to establish before you start getting near the Bradford Hill criteria for causation. So to be quite honest, they are a complete and utter waste of time. And worse than that, they're doing harm because they are what people see in the media headlines, whether it's the Washington Post or the Daily Mail in the UK. Those are the studies that get the headlines. And they're not proper research. They're not randomized controlled trials. They're not interventions that might give us a causation or an interesting result but they're just interrogations of data with an agenda to try to find something that can get tomorrow's headline. And we, oh, I'd love to stop it. I don't know how, but it drives me nuts. Zoe, do we have any idea of uh, what the, to quantify the evidence? You know, if we look at the whole scope of nutritional evidence, what percentage of it comes from these sort of observational associational epidemiologic studies versus, you know, what would be randomized control trials? Do we have an idea? I've seen some estimates where it was, something like 80% or more of our information comes from this type of, you know, basically, basically useless type of study. Yeah, it must be because particularly in my field that I know very well, the dietary fat interventions, there are so few. And the last one, you're going back to the Women's Health Initiative, and there have been none done since. Now, there's an interesting aspect to this because not only is epidemiology a problem in nutrition i said this in my intro at the food for thought conference in zurich in switzerland last year when we were asked to say what evidence can we trust in nutrition we've got a big problem with randomized controlled trials in nutrition because as you'll know we can't change one thing which is what a randomized controlled trial is all about so if you you can't change any whole food because you're actually then changing almost always all three macronutrients and then you don't know, was it the change in fat or the change in protein or the change in carbohydrate? So what they tended to do with those original randomized controlled trials was to try to change fat. So they tried to leave carbohydrate alone and protein alone. But of course, as soon as you mess around with fat in a food, you have inevitably then changed carbohydrate and protein. So if they're trying to get people to eat fewer eggs and to eat more 
polyunsaturated fat spreads, then you have impacted protein because eggs are very rich in protein. So some of the studies would try to say, let's swap out, say, butter for polyunsaturated fats, but they never just left it at that. They'd then say, oh, you better not eat cakes and biscuits and pastries because they've got butter as well. Well, you've just changed so many things. I don't even know where to start. So if they were going to swap just one oil for another, so let's say they took people's diet and said, change nothing else other than the oil that you consume. Now, there are not enough people that consume coconut oil for us to be able to do a trial to say, okay, swap out from having your coconut oil and now switch it to, for example, olive oil or sunflower oil. And then we would know just changing gram for gram, oil for oil, we would know that we hadn't impacted protein, we hadn't impacted carbohydrate, we would impact all three fats. The minute we do that, we've impacted saturated fat, monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat. So again, we wouldn't be able to say what made the difference. If you swap out coconut oil and put in sunflower oil, what made the difference? Less saturated fat or more polyunsaturated fat or less saturated fat and more polyunsaturated fat? Would the vitamins come into play? Most oils are pretty nutritionally poor, but they do have a couple of the fat-soluble vitamins. So would the difference in vitamin A, uh, sorry, E, for example, make the difference? Once they tend to have an E and K, they tend not to have A and D. So would that make the difference? And then can we say it was the saturated fat and the polyunsaturated fat, or was it the vitamins in the particular oil that was chosen? So one of the fundamental problems that we've got with nutrition is that we cannot change one thing. So what I think we need to be doing is to study whole diets. So to be comparing, for example, people who eat as you do, Sean, or people who eat as Joel Kahn does, or people who are eating the standard American diet, to start comparing whole diets over a period of time as if you were doing a prospective cohort study, not a retrospective looking back at some data that just happens to exist from the 1960s, but actually following people who are sticking to a particular diet or a keto diet, whatever, follow those and then start seeing over the next 10 to 15 years, how many of those go on to develop diabetes, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, cancer, and so on. That is where I think nutrition needs to go for evidence. And it's certainly, there's no sign of it going in that direction at the moment. You know, I agree 100%. You know, again, the, the counter argument that it's too, too expensive, the compliance rates are going to be hard. It's just hard. It's too hard to do. And, and therefore, we need to just settle. You know, we need to settle what we got. And, and I think that's the sentiment that we've got there. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just not good enough. You know, we, we, you know, we, we, you know, we know what we need to do, but we don't want to do it because we can't pay for it. You know, I, what do you think about animal studies? Do you think animal studies can be uh, a potentially more helpful than than uh, human studies because humans as you know it's very very difficult to get humans to comply yeah um my answer to that is no i will just pick you up on the um the compliance one on the other one because i have absolutely no doubt that i could rely on you to comply with your diet throughout the period that we wanted to observe you and i've got no doubt that there would be quite a few people doing a very low carb diet to keep their type 2 diabetes in remission who we could rely on to stick to that and i think a lot of the vegans we could rely on to stick to their diet over a period of time as well. So I, I do think that we could do that. I think it's disappointing that we're, we're not trying. Animal studies, I think, are a very, very limited use. And I think they're of more use with exploring po possible mechanisms. Um, so, for example, there's one that Gary Tobes talks about in The Diet Delusion, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which I think is really interesting. And it's an observation that when you remove 
ovaries from rats, they develop voracious appetites. Now that's really helpful in our understanding of food cravings in menopausal women. Because removing the ovaries in rats is mimicking the cessation, almost overnight cessation of oestrogen within that animal. And that's not dissimilar to the cessation of oestrogen production in women of a, of a particular age. So I think that can be very informative for us. And we might then want to do an intervention where we interview perhaps some women aged 50 to 55 who've not entered the menopause and women aged 50 to 55 who have and using uh, subjective, uh, sorry, objective measures, try to ascertain the level of food addiction that those people feel, the level of food cravings that they feel, the particular foods that they seem to be craving. And that then would give us useful information to say the menopause has a clear impact on cravings and appetite, and it seems to manifest itself in particular with these particular foods, and therefore perhaps um, steps could be taken to mitigate against potential problems that were going to occur during that period of time so something like that i think is very useful when you get these stupid studies and i can't remember the one that said animal protein is worse than smoking i, I tore that one apart a couple of years ago and the headline was it was that animal protein and smoking and then it turns out that there's a couple of rats that they've done an experiment on or something and you just want to roll your eyes and say oh guys for goodness sake how how does the media let you get away with this how does the press release from the journal let you get away with this level of nonsense and making out that this is actually genuine valuable research because it isn't Zoe, just not to be too conspiratorial um, but you know we saw pretty clearly you know back going in the 1950s 60s maybe uh, pretty significant evidence that the sugar industry paid to influence research i know fred stair was you know, Harvard was known to take quite a bit of money from the sugar industry. Are we still seeing that in, you know, in, in research? I mean, we have pharmaceutical industries that obviously fund studies. We're seeing uh, studies that are funded by various, you know, foundations, food corporations. Do we, is there still a lot of conflict of interest that we need to worry about? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I could not believe. And when the Eat Lancet report came out in January of this year, my immediate reaction, I woke up at breakfast, I always open the newspaper because it tells you what diet stories have hit the news overnight. Sure enough, there it was, it had this fabulous little table saying we should all eat sort of two, two, two ounces, sorry, two grams or something, or something ridiculous, seven grams of, of red meat. And I thought it won't take me long to find the paper and they must have looked at the nutritional information of this diet that they, they're recommending. They must have done the micronutrient analysis. I'm sure it will be in the paper somewhere whiz through to find the food diet rec being recommended, whiz through the rest of the 50 page paper looking for micronutrients and just could not believe that they hadn't analyzed this diet that they were recommending. So it took two hours before my blog was up saying, this diet is deficient in vitamin B12 and vitamin D and calcium and heme iron and oh goodness knows what else. I mean, it was a recipe for disaster. Now in parallel, it's always great when people work on different aspects of the same paper in parallel, People like Frederick Leroy, Georgia Reed were doing some brilliant work. Joanna Blythman, who's a food writer in the UK, they were doing some great work digging around at the conflicts of interest. And I don't know who came up with it first, but it wasn't long before a little chart was doing the rounds on Twitter that was showing these are the organisations behind the group who are behind this Eat Lancet commissioned paper. 
And they're exactly the kind of organisations that you were talking about, the processed food organisations, the ones trying to come up with meat alternatives, the ones trying to get plant foods to be the basis of our diet. In fact, the only thing that we consume in our diet, so-called to save the planet. Um, George Reed, again, has done some brilliant work. I think she got an email through from um, somebody uh, else who did some brilliant work. And it turned out that they weren't trying to claim that we shouldn't eat meat because of the planet benefit. Eat actually said, no, 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 we were just trying to claim you shouldn't eat meat because of the health benefits. Like, well, there is no health benefit of not eating meat. So if you're now backtracking on your claims that it's going to save the planet, where are you going with this? This is, this is falling. This is unraveling in front, in front of our eyes. And this paper is barely even a couple of weeks old. So the conflicts are absolutely there with the fake food companies, the processed food companies, particularly with the cereal companies. I don't know if you've got into the mother of all conspiracy theories, but it's no longer a conspiracy theory. The work that Belinda Fetke has done, the wife of Dr. Gary Fetke, who of course was famously tried to be silenced for advising his diabetic patients they might want to consume less sugar. Belinda did some brilliant work tracing the origins of our increasingly plant-based dietary guidelines back to the Seventh-day Adventist the cereal organizations massive conglomerates like sanitarium general mills kellogg's um this entire network of vegans seventh-day adventist cereal companies now i thought when she first brought this to me which was a couple of summers ago i just thought belinda this is the most brilliant piece of research i've ever seen an unbelievable conspiracy theory but you look to be right and then in august of last year the seventh-day adventists published a paper you can put it on the show notes if you do those to this podcast. I'll send it over to you. They published a paper basically boasting about the impact that they had had in making our dietary guidelines plant-based over the decades since the Seventh-day Adventist Church had come into being. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not just the fake food companies. There is a vegan agenda. There's a religious agenda. There's a cereal company agenda. There's all kinds of agendas. Almost the only people who don't have a, an agenda are the poor farmers who are still out there just trying to provide us the decent natural food that we should be consuming. Everyone else seems to have an agenda. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, one, one thing that was surprising to me when we had Belinda on the show, when she highlighted kind of the, the, the backstory behind the, the Seventh-day Adventists' influence and the dietary guidelines, to me was that like, they're not even hiding it. Like they're not trying to make it look like this is all based in science. They're very clear that like, you know, like, well, we want you to eat cornflakes instead of meat because our youth are going to, you know, their, their testosterone is going to go too high if they're eating meat, they're not eating their cornflakes. So, I mean, it was their, their original modes were, were, were quite clear and they weren't, they weren't looking to even hide it. And, uh, you know, I just, it's one of those things I think sometimes nowadays we get kind of clouded a little bit by how easy it may have been back in that time to kind of slip something like that through the cracks because you just didn't have access to information like we do today where now you can, you can go and look this stuff up and you can find these things within minutes versus having to kind of, you know, go to the archives and spend a day researching, which, you know, people, people with full-time jobs just simply aren't going to do. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize you'd have Belinda on. I'm so pleased you've had Belinda on. I do link to that podcast from this one because she has just done some brilliant work. Um, and if we're allowed to say the word masturbation on the podcast, 
that was the original belief that meat was a sin, masturbation was a sin. Poor John Harvey Kellogg, who went on to run the Kellogg's conglomerate, which of course is still a massive global influencer of anything to do with dietary guidelines today. I think um, Belinda said he was about 12 or something when he was asked to typeset Ellen G. White's book and she was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. So this poor little 12-year-old boy is reading, you know, if I don't eat my cereal for breakfast and I don't have this massive amount of fibre, um, I'm going to go blind, I'm going to start playing with myself, everything's going to fall off, you know, the world's going to fall apart. It's, it's child cruelty. You can't be putting messages like that into some poor little kid. And then it's no wonder that he grows up thinking the same thing. Um, and Sylvester Graham, Graham's Crackers, another serial conglomerate, he also grows up thinking the same thing. You know, if we said that kind of thing today, if we said to people in kindergarten, oh, you, you, you don't eat enough fiber, you know, bad things are going to happen to you and you're going to go blind and you're going to start playing with yourself. And I mean, just you'd, you'd be thrown out of the school for child abuse. Like you can't lie to kids like that, for goodness sake. Mind you, five a day is just as much lying to kids, but there are degrees of lies, I think. And, and I think telling them that you're going to go blind and die early is probably slightly worse than I think you should eat five pieces of fruit today. Um, but we just insult people. People are bright enough to work out that if they thought about it, what have we been eating throughout evolution? What is probably likely to be good for us? And then just go to the nutritional information. One of my favorite fun things to do, I spend hours on nutritiondata.com. I have tables all over the place. When I was trying to work out, should I still be a vegetarian? And I would put in a column for oats and a column for red meat and a column for liver, lamb's liver, chicken liver, sardines, oily fish, eggs, dairy. And I put in a column for each of those foods. And then I'd look at complete protein, animal foods, tick. Essential fatty acids in the right form for the body, animal foods, tick. Then you start going through things like B12, retinol, the form of vitamin A that the body wants, D3, the form of vitamin D that the body wants, K2, the form of... These are the things that are predominantly or exclusively found in animal foods. The most absorbable nutrients, zinc best found from animal foods, heme iron only found in certain foods of animal origin. And you just come to the inescapable conclusion that the healthiest things that we should be eating are the very things that we're being told not to eat. And that then makes you start thinking, what's really going on here, guys? Because it's not adding up. Yeah, I mean, that's and the, 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 the point you made about B, William Harvey Kellogg or John Kellogg, which one was, was traumatized by, by his early youth experiences. Uh, we're seeing more and more attempts to, to sort of influence young children to, to, to adopt a vegan diet. They're sort of scaring these kids, you know, showing them horrible images of, you know, third world slaughter practice, practices. And uh, so we see that we're seeing this influence on these kids and wondering what's going to happen to these poor kids, you know, five, ten years from now. Oh, I totally agree. I love dogs, by the way. <laughs> the dog barking away there. I have a real problem when children start getting drawn into this. It's one thing for an adult to make the decision that they don't want to eat animal foods for whatever reason. And I completely understand that because I was a vegetarian for 20 years. And I know I lapsed into being a vegan during a certain period of that, as a lot of vegetarians do. Where I have the problem is when children are being influenced. And I think they're being increasingly influenced today because you've got the opportunity to deliver messages directly to them, not through the parents or through the teachers or through their guardians, sports coaches in any way. And they can see them on Facebook and they can see them on Instagram and they can see them on Twitter. If any of them go on Twitter, I think they're more on Facebook and Instagram. And my niece, for example, went vegetarian at nine 
And that concerns me and it concerns my brother, her father, because he's very familiar with what I do. He knows how to eat well. It's transformed. He was type one diabetic as a teenager. So eating real food and minimizing your carb intake has transformed his diabetes control. He just wishes he'd gone to it sooner as most diabetics do, because of course he followed the standard advice for a very long period of time. But when he asks me what is X missing out on because she's gone veggie, he gets really scared as I get because the list is just really long. Um, our big concern at the moment, because she's a really bright kid, is that she's just not getting her seafood omega-3s. So omega-3s in the right form. And of course, you'll have people saying, oh, but you can get omega-3s in flaxseed, not in the form that the body wants. You can't. You've got to be getting your omega-3s, your EPA and DHA, pretty much from oily fish. You do get the grass-fed beef guys saying, oh, look, the omega-3s of grass-fed beef are much better than those kept in sheds. Yet they are, but they're not a patch on oily fish. So I say to farmers, don't try that argument. You're not going to win that argument. The reason you've got to win the grass-fed argument is because we've got to save the planet's topsoil. And unless we have those ruminants out there grazing on the land, regurgitating and protecting the topsoil, we are all doomed and we would lose the ability to be able to grow our own food. And to be honest, some of the agri food companies have already worked that out and they're already growing fruits and vegetables upside down in greenhouses, no soil required. So if you want a James Bond plot scenario, you could definitely, I think there was one on the control of the water supply. You could definitely do one on the control of the food supply. And we are well down the line to this potential bond plot actually happening because the less topsoil we end up with, the more we are reliant on fake food companies to actually provide our food. And the Soil Association, people like the Soil Association in the UK, Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, these natural farming, Joel Salatan, these kind of guys, these are very much the friends of the real food movement because they're the people who know. I think the Soil Association tweeted recently, they'd calculated how many harvests we've got left if we carry on at the current rate of soil erosion. And it's really not many. It's the kind of harvest that would run out definitely in my lifetime, um, possibly not in my parents' lifetime. But we're talking not many more than 10 to 20 years. And that's really scary. And no, nobody seems to worry about it. Nobody seems to know about it. Well, we're trying. Uh, we've got Joel Salton coming on, I think, our show next week, if I'm not mistaken, Zach. I think Joel. He's coming on. And uh, Zoe, it's been wonderful talking to you. I want to be mindful of your time. I think we could talk for several hours, but I know you've got to – time crunch there but let folks know uh where they can find out about your work uh and, and anything else you want to comment on okay brilliant so i've got a blog uh, zoeharkin.com and as i said earlier on i've been doing a note every monday morning for almost 10 years taking the paper from the last week a number of them are on open view that is my business model i'm i'm not paid by anyone so um that's that's how i earn money there's a if you want to see all the blog posts, it's a, a pound a week, I think, or a dollar a week. It's, it's not very much. Um, and then I'm on Twitter pumping out stuff, particularly when I get wound up like today on red meat and bacon and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just at Zoe Harkham, Z-O-E, as you say, sorry, Z-O-E-H-A-R-C-O-M-B-E on Twitter. I'm rarely on Facebook. I'm never on Instagram. And that's about it, I think. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to come on, Zoe. We'll link those handles to the show notes as well as the article that you were talking about from Belinda. If you want to send that over to me, we can put that in there as well. 
Um, we'll do. I'll do that straight away. But yeah, thanks again for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Zoe, you know where, I, where are you going to be talking this year? Are you speaking anywhere this year? Just, uh, just oh, gosh, I've done so many already. I've done Denver. I've done a couple of farmer ones already. I did another overseas one I've done at the Oxford Literary Festival. I'm next at the PHC, which is in May. Then I'm up with some more farmers in Scotland. I'm at um, CrossFit, the Wisconsin, the main, the main gig at the end of July, beginning of August. I'm then at a conference, some, another couple in November, October. Too many, basically. <laughs> I need to cut back next year and actually get some work done because I'm a bit sort of conferenced out, I think. And I'm more than happy to come on again if you think there's some topics that we haven't covered or whatever and you want to rotate your, your guests, do, uh, do shout. I'm just so sorry that it's been uh, a bit choppy and we're out in the middle of the nowhere. No, that's, that's totally fine. I think we got some good content here and I'm sure our listeners will love it and we would be more than happy to have you back on down the road. Uh, we like our return guests. <laughs> Brilliant. That's lovely to hear. Thanks so much. And thanks for the invite in the first place. Really appreciate it. Enjoy. Have a wonderful evening. I know it's night. Thank you. Andy. Have night. a great day, you guys. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.